Three men sit in a cell, built with only one of them in mind. They're lucky, though. There are only three of them. The cell next door has four people. They're lucky. They all get along, for the most part. The cell next door does not. Life is bland and cruel. The three of them manage to eke out what little living there is to do in prison. They go to work at the leather factory, the greenhouse, or the welding shop, and on Sunday they go to church and pray. Pray that the days until their release would pass swift. Pray that they would be spared from the rampant murder that occurred outside their cell walls. On their time off, they would watch as construction started on a new wing to the prison. Eagerly anticipating the day when space would be made for them and their fellow inmates, hoping it would ease tensions and improve living conditions. It was April 21st, 1930. They had just gotten done eating dinner, beans, bacon, and bread, and were locked in their cells for the night. The pounding of hammers had long since ceased, and after a long day of working, they were able to relax as best as they could. After a few minutes, they heard a murmur making its way down the row of cells. The cells closest to the new construction were smelling smoke. A few minutes after the news reached them, they too smelt it. Panic rose in them, and they started to call out for the warden, for the officers on duty, anyone. They yelled and yelled, a chorus of cries echoed through the block. Fire. None of the officers would help. You will riot. You will escape. You are prisoners, they said. We will die, the prisoners cried. Ten minutes had passed, and not one person had been released from their cell. There were cries and screams coming from the direction of the fire. Terrible, blood-curdling screams as those poor souls burned to death. A fight broke out in a cell further down. A few officers opened the door to break it up. The men pounced and overpowered them. The keys were stolen and dispersed amongst the inmates, who then went down the rows, opening the doors and handing out more keys. It wouldn't be enough. Not enough people, too many people. Not enough time, too much time. The three men lay on the floor to escape the smoke as flames licked their feet. Welcome back to ANA Tall Tales. I'm Amanda. And I'm Andrea. And our topic today is the Ohio State Penitentiary. It's a fun one. This is this is an interesting one. <laughs> There's so much information and it has such an expansive history. It was 150 years of torment. Yeah, and for the most part, it's pretty literal torment. The penitentiary was opened in 1834. The original jail was built in 1813 and was quickly outgrown as not all buildings were completed on opening. Inmates slept initially on straw mattresses. They ate cornbread, beans, and bacon. They were required to work. There was a harness shop, a shoe shop, a barrel shop, a broom shop. So a couple different places for them to, to work and try and contribute back to society or however they chose to spend that. And then they actually at the time had a separate facility for women. Um, but then 1913, the Marysville prison was opened and the women moved there. So for about 100 years, they were kind of living in the same same area. That's just insane. <laughs> yeah. So 
the one thing I found was suicide, stabbings, and shootings were commonplace. And I don't know much about prison life, but I do know a lot about prison life through Hollywood. And Hollywood tells me you can make guns and shanking objects out of pretty much anything and if you bribe a couple guards you can get stuff past security so and that's today (laughs) yeah let alone from 1834 to 1984 so that was kind of the the base you know everything was pretty good or as good as it could have been for the first couple years but then the first tragedy actually struck in 1849 And it was a cholera outbreak, of all things, that killed 116 out of 423 inmates. Wow. That's an awful... Just a couple people. Awful way to die. I actually read, too, that um, during that cholera outbreak, that there was 126 people that died. So that's... Yeah. I mean, I don't know how well their records were kept and everything, but regardless, that's a quarter of the inmates almost or more yeah we'll get into it a little bit when we get to the fire but numbers with deaths are weird because are you counting people who died like during the outbreak people who died after the outbreak are you counting people who had cholera but died later of other issues that sort of thing so and they never quite figured it out look at the numbers today with the whole pandemic (laughs) That is true. And then from 1855 to 1897, they implemented the death penalty by hanging. So they had some gallows, and if you were convicted with the death penalty in those years, you were hung. At the prison. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the penitentiary. At the penitentiary, yes. And it was a pretty... Death by hanging is gruesome. Yeah, So trying to think because I'm morbid and weird and my husband knows all the random facts. He does. (laughs) (laughs) What you want when you're hung is to have the force of the drop meet the force of the rope and then basically break your neck and insta-kill you. And if it doesn't for some reason, then yeah, you're literally just hanging there being strangled to death it's not a good way to go yeah not even a little bit that's no wow Mm -hmm. i would say we're moving on to happier thoughts but not really because from 1897 to 1963 if you were convicted of a crime and sent to death row you were electrocuted in the chair that's yeah so the the electric chair is there were there was plenty of people that were hung at the penitentiary. The numbers I found were 28 men, including a 16-year-old, were hanged at the penitentiary. And then when the electric chair was brought into it in 1897, 315 men and women were put to death in this electric chair. And it was such a horrifying death that the corrections officers, the the prison guards, would not work. Mm -hmm the executions nobody ever volunteered and they had something called death house duties and that included um, feeding the prisoner their last meal fastening them to the chair flipping the switch on the chair and they would get 75 dollars overtime pay split amongst all of the attending officers 
And even during the days of the depression where extra money was needed, these men did everything they possibly could to not take this, this duty. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. No. And it just, it speaks to though, in the, the days of the great depression, where if I, the image that comes to mind is the whole, the ration lines and things just winding around town blocks and down streets, $75. Like we talk about every episode <laughs> that would go a long way in a, in a, that kind of thing. And you know, if there's two or three men that you're dividing that amongst, there was a lot of jobs in those eras that you didn't make $25 in a month. So for that to be something while your family is potentially starving that you still don't want to do, you know, that's pretty gruesome. That'll haunt you for the rest of your days type of thing. Yeah. So I just looked it up and I picked 1920 because that was about good, like in between number. Yeah. $75 in that money is just a little over a grand today. Wow. So again, even if it was split between three or four men, you're talking 250, 350. That's a significant amount of money, especially in super lean times. Yeah. But once again, it just goes to how awful that job was and how much it sucks to be a part of taking another human life. Right. Especially in that way. But then after 1963, Ohio outlawed the death penalty, so no more death row. Yay? Yeah. And then the next big event I have actually is the fire of 1930. And at the time, the capacity for the penitentiary was 1,500 inmates. Mm. There was an estimated total of 4,300 at the time. Let that sink in for a second. That's three and a half times, roughly, Mm -hmm. the amount of inmates. Yep. So you're talking guys almost literally sleeping on top of each other. Yeah. In, In cells. I don't know if any of you listeners have ever been to a penitentiary or a reformatory or a prison, but those cells aren't much bigger than the closet I'm sitting in right now. And then you have three guys in there. <laughs> oh, you're in the closet. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'm picturing this out again, because we spent so much time out at the reformatory with it being local here. I'm just picturing the cell size there where there's basically two metal bunks that are a foot and a half wide on the wall and enough room to almost turn around and then shove instead of two men in there, four or five. Yeah. It just, wow. The overcrowding gets worse, unfortunately, but that's for later. (laughs) So in the fire of 1930, 317 lives were lost. Like we were talking about earlier, it was anywhere from 315 to 324. But after the initial fire, an additional three people died from smoke inhalation. Wow. Which brings the total up to about 320. Yeah. I found 320 people were dead by the time the fire was brought under control. And 130 were seriously injured. Yeah. And that during the fire, 160 prisoners burned to death. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just, like, this was a huge thing, like, 500 armed soldiers were brought in to set up guns and ammunition and aim them at the inmates so they didn't escape the prison while they're burning to death. And I also found a report where the fire got to be extremely out of control, partially because as the firefighters were trying to come in to fight the fire, the prisoners were throwing rocks at them and pelting them with rocks and debris. I did find that report too. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't see why it wouldn't be, especially if they didn't let them out of their cells. I would be a little bit pissed off as well. Yeah, just a tiny bit. So, like in the story, it is rumored that um, some prisoners managed to overpower a guard. They stole the keys, went back into the cell blocks, and then just unlocked cells and handed out keys to other people. This tragedy caused the establishment of the parole board in 1931, which released 2,346 people by 1932. And even then, they're still not down to maximum numbers that the, the penitentiary was built to contain. Not at all. Wow. So the rumors as to how this fire started, the West Cell Block was added to the original prison in 1875, and they built it directly on top of the old prison cemetery. So according to some prisoners, the bodies of that, the men in that cemetery were never removed. And there was speculation among the prison population at that time that perhaps the former prisoners were having their revenge by starting the fire Ooh. from the other side. That's kind of spooky, and I like it. Yeah, it was really spooky, and I just, for some reason in my notes, I have, like, three sentences about it, and that's it. Like, I must have done it while I was at work or something and just didn't follow up on it. Oh, that's real, that's real spooky. Yeah, like, I have goosebumps. I think I do remember reading something about the prison being built on top of an old cemetery or something. Well, that's true. Well, it looks like, from what this is saying... I did somehow manage to copy and paste my source, at least. Um, That a handful of people named a more sinister source for the fire, noting that the doomed West cell block, which had been added to the original prison in 1875, had been built directly on top of the old prison cemetery, and the bodies were never removed. Mm, Don't build things on top of old cemeteries guys yeah how many times has this already come up and we're only on episode eight yeah the one thing i found was a couple inmates started the fire as a diversion so they could escape by lighting a candle with oil rags near it and that just you know took off and did what fire does The other one that I found was there was a short circuit in electrical wire in the block that was being built. So the block that was burnt down was the G and H block, and then the blocks that were being built were the I and K block. Okay. This one is actually what happened, they think. Going back to my newspapers, (laughs) (laughs) the... 
the historical newspaper slash document site for Ohio that I have on a bookmark at this point, I was actually able to find the investigative report that the Ohio government did into the fire. Really? And read that cover to cover because why not? Hey, that's that's absolutely awesome. So they aren't they're attributing it to an electrical issue. They couldn't really determine a cause because we'll put pictures up of everything, but it like it was gone. Mm. The entire block was gone that they were working on. But in the area that they were working, they had five 40-watt light bulbs attached to two-by-six boards. They then suspended the board from the wooden trusses of the roof with ordinary bailing non-insulated wire. What? An additional string of lights was strung around the trusses. They had stripped the wires and then just reconnected them to the wiring that was already in place with weatherproofing tape. Uh, um, that's never a good idea. That's not a good idea with the different connectors and tapes and things we have now, let alone 90 years ago. Yeah, so all the fire hazards and it made my brain just go, no, no, no. Like, even not knowing anything, I was like, this is not... <laughs> Please don't do this. Oh, wow. So I have that they strung the wire in order to connect it from the lights to the to the wire that was already in place. They just used insulated loops and hung the loops over nails in the trusses. Mm. Yeah. So there were, had been reports that the lights, th- these lights that had been hung had gone out several times during the day. Um, one time they were knocked and caused some failure, and then the other times they couldn't determine why the lights had gone out. I can tell you why the lights had gone out, but they couldn't determine it. (laughs) Um, and it was not dismantled after work had ceased at night. They left it up and running. Oh, because that's a good idea. On top of that, they were working on the fifth stack, so they had one more stack to go before they reached the ceiling. On top of the fifth stack, they had a bunch of oiled wooden forms and timbers to help kind of set the concrete that they were pouring to form the walls. And then you've got another like eight feet and then you're in a up to, I think it was like 90% wood roof ceiling. Oh. They had no fire safety equipment, so not even a fire extinguisher not even like a squirt bottle to squirt on the fire. Um, They had no evacuation plans. Quote, we expected the guards and officers to use their common sense. End quote. You know, common sense only gets you so far when there's fire. Common sense tells you... Fire and a couple thousand inmates you have to evacuate? Yeah. Uh, Common sense tells you to get a fire extinguisher and call the firefighters. Which is a huge issue that they found. So there was anywhere from a 10 to 20 minute lag time between when the smoke was detected and the fire department was notified. There was then no further action on the fire department's side for another 27, either 27 to 7 minutes, depending upon who they talked to. So we're talking almost an hour delay. That 
What? You're not talking mm-hmm. like a rural area where there was no easy. I mean, what? Yeah. Wow. It was a breakdown in commands and communication was basically what they chalked it up to. Um, so this next part, I have to explain a little bit. So when you have a row of prison cells, every cell has a door. But then at the end of the row, there is another gate to get into the row. Right. So there there are two stories here. One story is there were two guards. One was named Little and the other was named Baldwin. They claimed to have tried to get to the top row of cells in order to get to the people who were going to be most affected, but were denied by a third guard named Watkinson, who told them that they're not in command. He was told by his commanding officer not to open the cells. So Little and Baldwin went back down to the bottom cells where they opened the gates and let the prisoners out. Wow. And then they went back up to the top cells, overpowered Watkinson, opened the gate. They then handed the keys to the inmates to help unlock the cells. So it was guards overpowering guards, not inmates overpowering guards to get the keys and help distribute. Wow. The other story that Watkinson told in defense of himself said that Little in Baldwin came to him and told him he had to, quote, wait a while, end quote, <laughs> before he was allowed to open the top cells. So that just... what actually happened, we don't know. We have he said, she said, basically, at this point. Wow. But yeah, basically, the end of the report was... We think we know why it happened. Everything was too damaged to really tell. There was a breakdown in command. There was zero preparation for this sort of thing. So there was a lot of consequences (laughs) that occurred to the penitentiary after this point in time. I didn't write any of them down. I just have consequences. Well, for an entire parole system for the state to come out of something like this, that takes a lot. That's a lot of legalese and law writing and they got it done in a year so that's a hard push yeah um yeah like this this report i i'll have to check the date but i think it was i think it was done like within the month before the end of the month it was completed i believe that like they were because everything i found is before the end of 1931 so less than 18 months later they had released all of the the 2300 almost 2,400 prisoners on parole. Mm -hmm. So a kind of interesting thing is along with the creation of the parole board in 1931, that spurred some prison reform. There was a lot of riots that began across the country and across the prison system in general, but the Ohio State Penitentiary was horrible with it. A lot of it was begun by the fact that the food was horrible they would be given food like butter beans with a piece of fat sow belly that still had the hair on it. Oh, oh, so I actually have a cool one for this. So about the time, because I saw that article too, and then about the time that that was referencing, I came across a newspaper article. Oh, seriously? Of course I did. (laughs) (laughs) said something about how the local farmers had donated uh, fresh fruits that they couldn't sell to the penitentiary. And it was like, oh, look how good they're fed. They get fresh fruit. Hooray! Wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. So at that, after the fire and everything, 
a new warden was appointed at the penitentiary by the name of Warden Ralph, quote, Red Alvis. And he began some recreation programs that were tr- supposed to help boost prisoner morale, try to get a more humane culture going f- toward the prisoners. He wanted to to begin to rehabilitate them versus just punish them and hopefully release changed men back onto the streets. So he began a holiday boxing and wrestling program and had a bandstand built on the O'Henry athletic field, which was at that time the home of the prison's um, baseball team, the Hurricanes. And this whole reform movement drew attention from a lot of celebrities and athletes and performers so men like joe lewis and jack dempsey apparently entertainers along the lines of lionel hampton would show up and entertain the prisoners the ohio state university would bring their classical bands in and perform music uh, classical music and opera for these guys they brought in some different military members from lockbourne air force base and led discussions and did seminars and even the legendary osu coach woody hayes offered to help start an inmate football team they had a christmas show that was put on by the prisoners so they would do like a play and they would even allow a few outsiders in to watch these shows and despite all of this reform and everything which went on really became a big thing after the end of world war ii in 1945 yet somehow despite all of that despite the parole board and the the release of so many prisoners by 1955 the prison was at an all-time high of inmates 5235 in a prison that was built to contain 1500 which just i can't i can't even and like one of the former prisoners i have a quote that i found that stated i saw a lot of men die behind those walls how many i can't even remember half of them but there was a lot of killing like to the yeah. point where they were using classrooms and visiting areas as dormitories and they're still they're just there wasn't anywhere else to stick these guys yeah it's it wasn't good I mean, prison's never good, but it really wasn't yeah, good. Yeah, that's just... wow. It doesn't really get better, you guys. Oh, no. <laughs> so, in 1956, um, a doctor by the name of Chester Southham got a hold of some H-E-L-A cells which are cells that were grown from cancer. Ooh. There was a cervical tumor. I don't remember the woman's name, but she had a cervical tumor, and they aspirated some of the cells, and they grew the cells in a lab and sent them to doctors, and it's like, here, learn more about cancer. So that was what the HELA cells were for. And what happened was this doctor put up a poster or a flyer that said, hey, we need you for an experiment. And he had several, I think it was like somewhere around 100 inmates volunteer for this this program of being injected with cancer cells. Oh my goodness. To see what the heck would happen. Because 1956, cancer, we're just going to assume that the body can treat it like any normal infection. Wow. So they, the 
inmates expressed that they felt they were giving back to their community. They did it because they had family members who had died of cancer or were dying of cancer, and they just wanted to help. And the reason that they chose the penitentiary was because they had previously done research for tularemia disease, which is also known as rapid fever, and it was pretty successful. So you're talking medical experimentation shortly after the end of World War II and all the condemnation that went with the Nazis and all of their medical experimentation. Yikes. Um, That's not the worst of it, though. The doctor took his experiments outside of the penitentiary to hospitals where he injected the HELA cells without patient's permission or knowledge. Was this doctor a prisoner that was working as a, like, had he been convicted and was working as a prisoner inside the the penitentiary or? Nope. He was just, he was a doctor. just evil. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, was for the early part of his research, he was backed by lead medical professionals that it's not technically cancer we're injecting them with so we don't have to tell them we're injecting them with cancer was basically the rationale for this yeah it was a three i have it down as 322 1964 in the new york chimes we're not hiding facts by merely avoiding the use of words which will be misunderstood and which will have an emotional impact, which is in fact not correct. That, wow. You know, that's not that long ago, and that type of thing sounds familiar. That's yeah. insane. So, luckily, there are notes. I have a couple notes. So, a 1985 article I found said, One inmate traced seven men, so eight men total, and notes only two developed heart disease after testing, and the rest of them are fine. And then the doctor's notes of those he kept in contact with, which is an unknown number, only four to five of them developed cancer. If that's an unknown number, he could have only kept in contact with six of them. Yeah, or four to five of them. Wow. I will say that in 1963, uh, he did was starting to get some resistance Uh, with his experiments but then in 1967 his license was suspended good for a year that's it one year suspension for experimentation like this that's a little bit scary just a little bit again that wasn't that long ago no just wow Mm -hmm. during all of that as well the penitentiary was overrun with riots and apparently the worst of these riots was in 1968. That was my next talking point. How did you know? You know, I, we're starting to get in a good groove with this. So yeah, they this disease-ridden, overcrowded, just awful, unimaginable conditions penitentiary was, surprise, surprise, the grounds of chronic riots. So what happened in June of 1968? I'm not going to steal your thunder. Oh, that's okay. I actually have the first three major riots. The first occurred in 1952. And then June 24th, 1968, several buildings were destroyed. Like, can we just talk about that for a second? Yeah. How bad? Like, what do you guys have in there that you destroyed several buildings? Yeah. Like, 
Like, did, did you contact a cousin and have them bring over some construction equipment and just bulldoze a building? Did you make some sort of dynamite out of urine and dirt? I need to know. Wait, how... I can't ask them, but I need to know. Because everything that I read about this, it wasn't just that these buildings were damaged. It was they were completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. Like, Did they just bust at the seams and people just spilled everywhere? Oh, now I need to research. I didn't. I got tired of researching at this point and (laughs) didn't look into this. But now I need to look at newspapers and see if I can find any more info about these riots. Because the one in 1960 in June of 1968, not only were multiple buildings destroyed, but somehow in, in all of that destruction, only five convicts were killed. So that was actually a discrepancy I ran into was there was a June 24th, 1968, but then there was also a riot in August of that same year where a fire was lit. Nine guards were taken hostage in a 28 hour standoff. And that's where I also have five convicts dying. Interesting. That seems kind of odd. I can't believe I didn't look at newspapers. I can't either, but I mean, there's only so many times you can read through newspapers I know, in the time we have yeah. to research. It's not like we both don't have full-time jobs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, what? <laughs> Please. Um, so the riot in June actually led to the decision to replace the facility. In 1972, the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility was completed and most prisoners were sent from the Ohio Penitentiary to the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. Once the replacement facility had been established slash built, um, they closed the prison in 1979. Closing the prison does not mean everybody just left. It means no inmates came in. So they actually didn't get rid of everybody until 1983. Oh, that's interesting. So five years it took them to clear out the Which, prison. Which, for the amount of people that was there, it's not as horrible as I thought it was going to be. Mm-mm. And there was several famous inmates that went through the Ohio Penitentiary during its tenure. There were indeed. I have a list of names, but I unfortunately just never got around to researching any of them. <laughs> I got you, darling. I did it. Oh, this is why you're the best. <laughs> Me and my history brain, when I realized that the first on the list of famous inmates was General John Hunt Morgan. I was like, wait a minute, that is an American Civil War Confederate general. What the heck? And then I was like, you know what? Maybe I should look into these guys because maybe I'm missing those out on somebody else that's pretty cool. Guess what? They're all pretty cool. <gasps> Do tell. So none of these are in chronological order. I'm just going to info dump on y'all. Go for um, it. General John Hunt Morgan was a Confederate general in the American Civil War. He was a good old Kentucky boy who, in April of 1862, he raised the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry Regiment and fought the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee. He went from there to lead a raid through Tennessee into Kentucky and up across a thousand miles into Indiana and Ohio. He surrendered in Selineville, Ohio, after the Battle of Selineville, where he was imprisoned at the Ohio Penitentiary. Hmm. The imprisonment didn't last long. He actually escaped and ran back to the Confederate Army, where he was killed in Greenville, Tennessee, in 1864. So he is—he was pretty uh, 
He wanted to be in war. Yeah. He definitely believed in his cause. A hundred percent. Yeah. And apparently the penitentiary was not quite as impressive (laughs) at its beginning there because he was only there for a couple months. Yeah. And then he was like, I'm out. See ya. So the next one that's kind of interesting is a man by the name of George Bugs Moran. He was an American Prohibition era gangster and bootlegger from Chicago. He was a bad dude. He was incarcerated three times before his 21st birthday. Um, The gang that he ran had seven members that were killed in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in February of 1929. He was a well-known rival of Al Capone. And this guy, this Bugs Moran, he was convicted of robbery, conspiracy, and... I'm sorry, bank robbery and conspiracy to counterfeit checks and cash in $62,000 worth of American Express checks. He was right again. We're going back to this whole, you know, money discrepancy between then and now. That's a lot. Hang on, hang on. (laughs) $62,000. Work your magic, Manda Panda. Uh, 938,918. You know, just under a cool million. So he was convicted of that and sentenced to 10 to 20 years at the Ohio Penitentiary and five years at Leavenworth Prison. He was later buried at Leavenworth Prison. So I didn't go too far into it because I could probably make a full episode out of all this stuff because my history brain. So along with that, there were two other Prohibition era gangsters by the name of Harry Pierpont and Charles Makeley. So both of these men were associates of John Dillinger. Harry Pierpont is well known to have been a mentor to John Dillinger. Harry was convicted of carrying concealed weapons, robbery, being part of the Pierpont Bridgewater gang, bank robberies, multiple prison escapes. And then Charles Makeley was also known as Charles McGray and Fat Charles. He was convicted of bootlegging, bank robbery, and murder. While awaiting the electric chair, Makeley and Pierpont carved revolvers from soap, from blocks of soap, and used shoe polish to blacken them. So they then used these soap guns as props for an escape. Not surprisingly, it was a failed escape. Armed guards shot both the men. Pierpont was seriously injured, but survived. Makeley's death certificate says that he died of internal hemorrhaging from the shooting. You can't see my face right now, but I am like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I told you it was cool. Like, you can't make this oh, stuff up. I just, I need to know what the guns look like because my craft brain is going, how? Right? But also, I need to know. And you're talking, so Harry Pierpont was then executed by electric chair at the Ohio Penitentiary on October 17th, 1934. So my guess is these guns were probably revolver style. Yeah. Most likely. Um, out of soap. Mm-hmm. And that they just, they used shoe polish to blacken them. Why did they have shoe polish? Because there was a shoe factory at one point. I don't oh. know if it was still around at that time, but there was at one point a shoe factory. I'm going to just say that that probably was still around because otherwise in such a poorly run and established prison system. I don't know why else they would possibly have shoe polish. I don't either. So that was our prohibition era bootleggers, which that just still, that era of history is so fascinating to me. 
there was also backing up a little bit before even that a man by the name of William Sidney Porter. He was he was in the penitentiary in the 1890s. He was an American short story writer. So his legacy includes the pseudonym O. Henry. So the initial O. Period Henry. And to this day, there is an award called the O. Henry Award, which is an annual prize awarded to outstanding short stories. And I believe there's also a scholarship associated with that at a couple, at, I believe OSU actually. What was he doing in prison? Oh, we're, we're getting there. Okay. Um, his, another part of his le- legacy, which I mentioned already, was the O. Henry Athletic Field at the penitentiary. It was named after him. I have no idea why. There was nothing that I could find that said why. Probably just because he was some famous person that actually did good. You can't hear the quotation marks there. There. He's he's actually worth a look into if you have any kind of interest in writing in American history. He's a very um, he's a very interesting fella. So he was at the penitentiary because he allegedly embezzled money from the bank where he was working. Oh. His father-in-law he had married into a wealthy family which was what made the embezzlement charges odd. His father-in-law posted bail for him, but William Porter got scared and he fled to Honduras before his sentencing because Honduras had no extradition laws to the U.S. at that time. He lived in Honduras for six months where he befriended a notorious train robber. And the train robber actually at some point after their friendship wrote a book about this man. So... The short story writer did not write the book about the train robber. The train robber wrote the book about the short story writer. That's, that's, yeah, I'm laughing. Anyway, continue. (laughs) Right? So, unfortunately for Mr. Porter, his wife was not in good health. She was not in good health. She was frail and everything from the beginning of their relationship, even before their marriage. Unfortunately, her health was so poor that she was unable to meet him in Honduras And he got word that she was dying and he actually left Honduras and went back to Texas where he got there shortly before she died of consumption, which we now know is tuberculosis. So not the TB. Yeah. Once he was back in the United States, he turned himself back into the police. They were hunting him. He was found guilty of embezzling a whopping $854.08 and sentenced to five years at the Ohio Penitentiary. Wow. So he was also a licensed pharmacist, and he was able to work in the prison hospital as a druggist. And by all reports, he had his own room in the hospital where he actually never stayed in the cell blocks. And he did his, his five years. In that five years, his pseudonym, O. Henry became famous and he wrote and published 14 short stories while in prison and Hmm. the list of his short stories is quite impressive we've all in uh, at least around our age group here um have read a lot of them in english class so it was kind of kind of interesting so that was and somehow in in that time frame of him being in in the prison he also did something to the point where They named the athletic field after him. I don't know if he started the team or what. There was no information on that. And then the most recent famous convict (laughs) was a man named Sam Shepard, also known as Samuel Holmes Shepard. He was an American neurosurgeon 
who was convicted in 1954 of the murder of his wife. The case was covered extensively nationwide by the media to the point where the judge, the Supreme Court, said that there was no way for due process to happen. So basically there was so much hearsay and so many stories floating around and there was so much interest in this case that the jurors could not make a decision without bias. That's interesting. Right? So like the first viral story? Pretty much. And despite all of that, even the the Supreme Court admitting that he was convicted still in 1954. By 1966, so 12 years later, they had a second trial and he was actually exonerated, but he spent 12 years in prison. And his story is said to have inspired the movie The Fugitive. Hmm. So that was the list of famous convicts at the Ohio Penitentiary. That was definitely interesting. Right? Got you some bootleggers, some gangsters, a general, a writer, and a surgeon. Mm-hmm. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. <laughs> Two guys walked into a bar, one of them ducked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. Um, anyway, so <laughs> speaking of movies, there is a TV movie called Love on the Run, which was filmed or aired in 1985, which has the Ohio State Penitentiary as its setting. No way. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. So it's, it's, it's going on the list. Yeah. Movie day. And then in 1995, the penitentiary was purchased by the state. And two years later, it was gone. Yeah. And then what went up there? Nationwide Arena. And the Arena District. 23 acres. 15 mm-hmm. buildings gone. And all the entertainment you could possibly want. And let's see. There is a concert venue there that we go to sometimes there's a couple parking garages there's some apartment buildings it's a really cool area um i think there's also an ohio state university dormitory probably they like keep spreading out like tendrils yeah soon the entire state of ohio is going to be the ohio state university (laughs) pretty much anyway sorry continue anyway there is a rumor that the electric chair was situated right where center ice at Nationwide Arena would be. Which is a really cool story if the arena itself wasn't actually built in the parking lot across the street from the penitentiary. (laughs) So So not not where the chair was. No, not at all. Um, There have been a couple mysterious deaths in that area so it's reported that a couple construction workers for the arena died mysteriously that some window washers despite the rigging being absolutely perfect and you know clear nice sunny day just somehow fell out of their rigging to their death i couldn't find any confirmation of those deaths but there is another one that did happen in 2002 Mm. which I was actually at the game this happened. So what happened was a puck was shot and flipped up over the boards and the plexiglass. It struck a girl and she eventually died from the shot. Holy smokes. 
Yeah, so that's why there's now nets behind the goals, so that that doesn't happen. And that was that was a weird game to be at because all of a sudden play just play was going, but then there was all this commotion off to the side, and there was people with stretcher. Or no, there wasn't a stretcher because she walked out under her own power. What? But yeah, so like she just had a bit of a headache, but then it turned into this. I don't remember exactly, but it turned into this whole huge thing. It was twenty um, years ago. Yeah. But wow. Um, so yeah, you know, this is complete supposition on my part again because I just have these aha moments in the middle of these every time, and I'm sorry. It's okay. When I was reading about the gallows setup, now mind you, this entire prison campus was 23 acres to begin with that's a significantly large space especially in downtown columbus and it makes me wonder if perhaps where the hockey ring and and center ice is now may not have been where the gallows were at some point i don't know because because the prison was initially built to house 400 people And then they added wings and then they added more buildings and then they added and added and added and it was 150 years. And by the time that they tore it down, it was 15 buildings, not including the five that were destroyed in the the one riot. Yeah. So it just makes me wonder a little bit if that's because what we're finding a lot of doing all this research is usually when there's a legend like that, a story like that, there's a grain of truth to it, even when it's been contorted into a tall tale. Yeah, that'd be... I I did find one that someone had posted a map of, like, the buildings as they stood Mm. and then had labels of, like, what every building was, but I don't think... I think it was a more recent one, so I don't think they had the gallows and the electric chair in there, but I'll I'll post that because it's super interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it was kind of like with the, the whole fire where the one west block of the prison had been built on the cemetery, the original... Mm-hmm. prison cemetery so it just makes you wonder a little bit if there haven't been some strange happenings at center ice for a reason yeah but it's not just center ice people in the parking garages people in the apartments across the street where the penitentiary actually sat hear disembodied screams smell smoke where there's no fire they see apparitions they feel like they're being watched there's doors opening and closing there's feelings of uneasiness and like these are newer apartments like within the last decade yeah but just in the fire alone 320 to to 500 people died during and after the fire just in the electric chair 315 people died and the reports of anybody and everybody that actually wrote diaries and things during the the height of the penitentiary talk about every which way you turned people were stabbing each other killing each other committing suicide who knows Mm -hmm. how extensive that prison cemetery was that penitentiary cemetery was yeah it's the area itself doesn't really give me any creeps or bad vibes or anything so i don't know but it's also usually super crowded and it's hard to get reads on places when there's a lot of people. So I think I've only been there once and that was in college to go to something to do with a football rally. We'll have to, I'll have to drive you past there. That would be cool. Maybe once it's not negative 12 out. I I watched a YouTube video of um, people 
who own a reptile zoo. They live in Wisconsin. They said with wind chill the other day it was negative 31. No thanks. Yeah, no thank you. My trough heater at the barn went out yesterday when it was a high of 9. And Ugh. even though today was a high of 42, because, you know, that's not going to give you whiplash. Um, my 150-gallon water trough at the horse barn is a solid block of ice still. And Ugh. I have some very grumpy ponies. Yes. Even though they are getting warm water brought to them from the garage. Spoil. Harley thinks he needs to come in the house. Uh, that's because he does. He flat out told me the other day that he has been told that when it's cold out, you need to bring your pets inside and he deserves a couch. He does deserve a couch. I mean, it's Harley. Come on. He and Della deserve a couch. You know he would be a 1,500 pound lap dog if he could. He would. <laughs> anyway, squirrel moment. Anyway. Yes, I have a horse that's a diva. I have a few of them. Yes. Um. So yeah, that is the Ohio State Penitentiary. And what a story it is. Do we do a teaser? Teaser, teaser. Do the teaser. You do the teaser. It's your subject. <laughs> I can't wait. We are doing giants and pygmies in Ohio. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. what we're doing. Did you forget? I did. Oh my wait, that goodness. Means, that means we have to go down to like the serpent mounds and stuff. Yes. And we have to corner your father-in-law for some info, apparently. Wasn't he the one that was talking about the pygmies and Chillicothe? Maybe. I think we can bribe him with Probably. some cookies or something. I think we could bribe him with some cookies. Or some really good garlic bread. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, so we will cover some giants and pygmies and all of the legends that go with that. And I don't know, that might be our first two-part episode if all of the information I'm finding is in the indicator. I haven't even started. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole. Don't look at it when you have something else to do. Okay. I won't. I promise. Because it expands very rapidly from just in Ohio to worldwide. And it goes all the way from recent history, as in like the 70s and 80s, all the way back to Egyptian era. Ooh. Yeah, I can't wait. So anyway, without giving more away. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Send us your stories. As always, pretty, pretty please. We've had a couple of listener submissions and kind of thinking we're going to end up having to do a, an extra episode, a bonus episode to talk about all that. Um, yeah. So send us some stories if you have any stories about giants or pygmies. That would be fantastic. Or the Ohio State Penitentiary or yes. anything, really. We would love to hear from you. As always, our email is anatalltales at gmail.com. You can send us a submission on the website. You can send us a Facebook message. We still watch them obsessively. Yes, we do. So our first one came in and I think I texted Amanda and I was like, stop what you're doing and look at our email <laughs> right now. Do it now. So. She did. She was so excited. I was like, oh my God. So I was so excited too. It's fine. Yeah. She was like, you just levitated to the roof, didn't you? And I was like, I'm still there. Go look. <laughs> so anyway, we will see you next time. We will see you guys next time. This has been A&A Tall Tales, an independently written, recorded, and produced podcast. Our intro sounds are Crackling Fireplace by Julius H. and Nightwoods by Widget Studios. Our intro song is Harmonica Solo by Julius H. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only.